Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the Perth Mint Swindle. Now, the Perth Mint Swindle is the popular name for the robbery of 49 gold bars weighing 68 kilograms, which is 150 pounds or 2,200 troy ounces, from the Perth Mint in Western Australia on the 22nd of June 1982. The bullion was valued at Australian $653,000 at that time. In 2011, it would have been $2.02 million. As of the 8th of January 2018, the value of the 68 kilograms or 150 pounds of gold would approach Australian $3.7 million. According to police at the time, three brothers, Ray, Peter, and Brian Mickelberg, orchestrated the robbery. Soon after the robbery, police investigations focused on the Mickelberg brothers. According to the police at the time, the brothers stole checks from a Perth building society and then fooled the mint into accepting those checks in exchange for gold bullion, which it was alleged the brothers had a courier pick up. The gold was picked up by a security company who delivered it to an office in Perth and then to Jackadot Airport, from where it seemingly disappeared. In a separate matter in September of 1982, the three brothers, their parents, and another man, Brian Posey, were charged over a matter relating to a manufactured gold nugget known as the Yellow Rose of Texas. Perth businessman Alan Bond had purchased a nugget for $350,000 in November of 1980. However, it was later found to be worth less than $150,000, and Raymond Mickelberg and Brian Posey pleaded guilty to charges of conspiracy to fraud at their June 1984 trial. In July of 1989, 121 pounds of gold pallets, said to have been from the swindle, were found outside the gates of TVW7, currently Channel 7 Perth, a Perth television station, with an anonymous note addressed to one of the station's reporters, Alison Fan, protesting the Mickelberg's innocence and claiming that a prominent Perth businessman was behind the swindle. The gold was subsequently recovered. It was alleged that using aliases Fryer and Blackwood, the Micklebergs regularly rang the Perth Mint over a number of months inquiring of the price of gold and indicating that they were contemplating buying a quantity of gold. These communications were intended to disarm Mint employees who were not surprised or suspicious when Fryer and Blackwood rang and purchased a large quantity of gold. The Micklebergs, it was alleged, stole blank building society checks from two agencies, then burnt down the buildings to disguise the theft. It was alleged that they rented an office for a short period over the phone for which they paid in advance by posted bank check. The key was to be posted to a post box. In a similar fashion, a secretary was employed to be at the office for a specific period during the day the gold swindle took place. Her telephone instructions were to hand to security couriers an envelope, unbeknown to her, containing the stolen building society checks made out to the Perth Mint and a number of toolboxes. 
The couriers, also engaged without meeting their clients, delivered the checks to the mint in exchange for the gold. The checks were allegedly left in the rented office prior to the arrival of the secretary by Peter Mickelberg, wearing a disguise and driving a vehicle recently purchased in a false name and fitted with a CB radio. The boxes were then returned to the rented office and subsequently collected by another courier who was instructed that they contained mining samples and were to be delivered to Jankadot Airport. This courier was also engaged over the telephone and his instructions were given via his CB radio. The bulk of gold stolen, apart from what was given to Alison Fan and recovered outside Channel 7 in Perth, has never been recovered. The three Mickelberg brothers were convicted in the district court at Perth on an indictment containing eight counts. The principal offence for which they were convicted was that of conspiracy to defraud the director of the Perth Mint by inducing him to part with a quantity of gold valued at $652,975.24 without receiving payment for it. The other offences were all related and were each in the nature of overt acts in furtherance of the alleged conspiracy. Count 2 alleged that the three Micklebergs broken into the building and stole a quantity of blank building society check forms. Count 3 alleges that further on the same day they willfully and unlawfully set fire to the building. Count 4 alleges that the Micklebergs broken into another building and stole a further quantity of blank building society check forms. Count 5 alleges that further on that day they set fire to the building. Counts 6, 7, and 8 allege that by falsely pretending to be an employee of the Perth Mint that the checks were good and valid security for the amount of $652,975.24 obtained a quantity of gold with the intent to defraud. The evidence against the Micklebergs was light and circumstantial. Without confessions, it would have been particularly difficult to have secured convictions for any of the offences. Each of the Micklebergs was convicted on the fabricated confessions which Hancock and Ludanowski had allegedly, it has been said, concocted. The Mickelberg brothers have consistently and strenuously claimed that the alleged confessions were fabricated by Hancock and Ludanowski and that both police officers perjured themselves in the various courts and inquiries in which they had given sworn evidence. Peter Mickelberg has also been unswerving in his claim that he was stripped, handcuffed and beaten by both officers. Hancock and Ludanowski have both given sworn evidence on numerous occasions that no such stripping or assault took place. Part of the circumstantial evidence presented against Raymond Mickelberg was an alleged fingerprint of his found on one of the Building Society checks used in the swindle. Raymond has consistently claimed that his fingerprint was fraudulently placed onto the check by the police. The Micklebergs have, in various courts, presented experts, including overseas authorities, who testified that, in their opinion, the confessions were fabricated and that the fingerprint was not caused by Raymond Mickelberg handling the check at the time claimed. The major issue in the 1998 appeals concerned the evidence relating to the circumstances under which a fingerprint of Raymond Mickelberg had been found on a check drawn on the Western Australian Building Society, which had been used to pay for part of the gold in the sum of $249,932.74. Ray Mickelberg's contention was that the fingerprint had been forged and that he was a victim of a conspiracy by police officers to secure his convictions on the basis of false evidence. Namely, the so-called disappearance of the fingerprint when the WABS check was returned to Perth from Canberra. There was other circumstantial evidence against Ray Mickelberg, namely the fact that two of the checks used to perpetrate the mint fraud were drawn on the account of Peter Gully, being a bank account operated by Ray Mickelberg under that name. Ray claimed in his defence that some other person person unknown must have found the Gully account passbook which Ray Mickelberg said he had lost and used the account number for the account on the two checks to implicate Ray Mickelberg and divert it from himself. On each occasion the evidence of Hancock and Ludanowski had been accepted in preference to the Mickelbergs and their expert witnesses. 
Now, interestingly enough, Ludanowski later admitted that the fabricated confessions were concocted and composed by he and Hancock two months after the Mickelbergs were alleged to have given them, that Peter Mickelberg was assaulted, and that the first he, Ludanowski, first knew of the fingerprint allegation was when the check was sent for expert examination by Hancock. Now, I'm going to read you Ludanowski's affidavit. Quote, I'm a licensed inquiry agent and a former police officer in the Western Australian Police Force. At the time when Peter Mickelberg Brian Mickelberg and Raymond Mickelberg were charged in 1982 with offences relating to the Perthman swindle, I was a detective sergeant and held the position of permanent CIB duty sergeant. In my capacity as CIB duty sergeant, I was responsible for any matters that came to the attention of the CIB. When the Perth Mint swindle first came to light, a squad was formed to deal with it, and I became a member of that squad, which was under the leadership of Detective Sergeant Don Hancock. At the time of the inquiry, I came to the view that the three Mickelberg brothers had perpetrated the Mint swindle. I believed that to get three people to fit the pattern of events would be impossible. However, at the time, they were charged with the offences on July 26th of 1982. I said to Don Hancock that I did not believe that we had enough evidence and he said to me don't worry it will get better Early on the same day, 26th of July 1982, I was with Don Hancock and we were returning from Midland. He requested other officers to pick up Ray, Brian and Peter Mickelberg. He gave instructions that Peter Mickelberg was to be brought to Belmont CIB offices. When Peter Mickelberg arrived and the other officers left, Don Hancock came into the room and told me to make Peter strip naked. I ordered Peter to get undressed and he did. At this time, I'm not certain if I put the handcuffs on him, but he was definitely stripped naked. I went through his cloths and found a letter written by a solicitor, Ron Cannon, which we just chucked aside because Don called it Cannon's Joke. Don went up to Peter and gave him two or three quick punches in the solar plexus. At different times, I'd grab him and push him back in the chair and into the wall. Throughout the time he was there, about four or five hours, he never really said anything other than he wanted to talk to his brother Ray and then he would talk to us. We never did the record of interview until much later, about two months later. The statements which were purportedly taken from Peter Mickelberg at Belmont CIB on the 26th of July 1982 were in fact not taken in Peter's presence that day, but were a fabrication made by Dong Hancock and myself shortly after the 2nd of September 1982. I believed at the time and I believe now that the Mickelbergs did the mint job. The statements when made were based on later information. I mean, for example, about the burned and dumped car. Peter said nothing about that because we did not know about that until later, so we put that in the fabricated statement. Basically, the evidence given by Mr. Radley and Dr. Baxendale, two document experts appearing in the Mickelberg Appeal in the 1998 Court of Criminal Appeals, was correct. Don and I just sat around adding in what we reckoned we needed. When we did Ray's statement, I cannot remember using his diary, but terms were used which Ray used during our various conversations. There were certain terms, and we put them in the statement. We did Brian's statement at the same time. At the Mint Swindle trial, we thought that we would get Ray and Peter, but we thought we would lose Brian because we didn't give Brian enough. We didn't tell enough lies. The notes that were compiled for the trial were basically completed in one day. There were bits that were rewritten or portions that were rewritten, but basically they were compiled over one day. I gave evidence at the Mint Swindle trial and at numerous appeals over the years, as well as providing information at a number of internal inquiries. All that evidence in relation to the so-called confessions of Peter Mickelberg, Brian Mickelberg, and Raymond Mickelberg, having been true statements of, th of those three brothers, was false. The statements were fabricated by Don Hancock and myself sometime early in September of 1982. A lot of the evidence that Hancock and I gave in various courts, I was amazed at what we got away with. In respect to the fingerprints, I 
I never saw the original chick, and even though I was basically second in command to Don Hancock in the Mint Inquiry, he never said anything about a fingerprint, and the first I knew was when the chick was sent to Canberra for scientific work. I considered Don Hancock to be my best friend. He was a hard man, but I considered him to be a fair man. I could characterize myself as a great follower, but a terrible leader. Don was definitely the leader, and over the years that Don was alive, there was no chance of me going against his wishes. We talked many, many times about the confessions to keep the story going. I said to Don on one particular day, Don, you are going to die. You know a long time before me that I am going to be cop with all this shit. He said, now you'll be all right, mate, but whatever happens, just do your best. I have never copped a penny for this. I've had 20 years of hell. I've basically had enough of it. I lost my business. I've lost my wife. I've lost my son. I've gained nothing from this. I am now telling the truth. I have told lies and I'm not proud of it. I make this statement fully knowing that I've committed offences, but I'm doing it without coercion of any kind and of my own free will. I have had enough. Now that Don Hancock is dead, I cannot harm him, and I am now telling the truth. End quote. Now, interestingly enough, Tody Ludanowski, who helped to frame the Mickelberg brothers for the 1982 Perth Mint Swindle, was actually found dead in his Perth backyard. Mike Buckley, a private detective and longtime friend, discovered Mr. Ludanowski's body at his Pamelia home at about 1pm, and it has been ruled as a suicide, although some people don't believe it is, but it was ruled a suicide. Three months after the Mickelbergs were interviewed by Hancock and Ludanowski, Peter Mickelberg secretly taped a conversation between himself, his brother Raymond, and Hancock outside Raymond's Perth suburban home. The tape could not be released prior to recent events because of legal problems. Hancock is heard to be making the following comments in response to Raymond Mickelberg complaining about Hancock dragging his wife and young children into police headquarters for the obvious purpose of intimidating Mickelberg. Quote, There might be guidelines, but no rules. I could have gone harder. I could have on harder. We could have thrown them in and built a fence around them too and made it real hard. The point was to try and get you to come to the party, but you didn't. You didn't react as most fellows would have done over the whole deal, so something different had to be done. I'm not a mean person, but I'll tell you what, I've done things in my life that you never did and harder things, worse things, and if I gotta do them again, well I'll do them again. What I believe is my line of duty. The majority of things cleared up because of pressure that can be brought to bear in other ways than personally. If it was left to that, nobody would ever get anything cleaned up. The weak blokes would admit the things the strong blokes wouldn't. End quote. Then there is a discussion about the Mickelbergs being advised to obtain medical certificates prior to their interrogations. Quote, Irrespective of what you people say at any time, nobody is ever going to believe that. Nobody here is going to say that they bashed you or threatened you or anything like. End quote. Hancock tells the Mickelbergs, quote, you have no idea what a bashing is, and then goes on to complain that the bloody medical certificates made it very, very difficult. End quote. The three men went to trial and were found guilty of the conspiracy and sentenced in 1983 to 20, 16, and 12 years in jail, respectively. Whilst in prison, Ray and Peter embarked on a series of seven appeals against their convictions, essentially on the grounds that their confessions had been fabricated by police investigators. Ray and Peter served eight and six years of their sentences, respectively, before being released on parole. After serving nine months of his jail term and having his conviction overturned on appeal, Brian was released from jail but died in a light aircraft crash on the 27th of February 1986 when the twin-engined Aero Commander he was flying ran out of fuel near Canning Dam on the outskirts of Perth. 
In July 2004, the Western Australian Court of Criminal Appeal quashed the brothers' convictions after seven unsuccessful attempts. The judge ruled that with the suppression of their sentence, they were entitled to to a presumption of innocence. The Assistant Police Commissioner, Mel Hay, expressed disappointment with the decision, which prompted a threat of a defamation lawsuit from the brothers. The brothers subsequently sued the Western Australian Government for libel, and as part of the settlement, the Western Australian Police issued a public apology in December of 2007. After lodgment of the brothers' claim, for compensation in January 2008, State Attorney General Jim McGinty offered $500,000 in ex grata payments to each brother for the injustice done to them. The payments followed $658,672 paid to cover legal costs of their two appeals. The Mickelberg's lawyer had asked for $950,000 in compensation for Ray and $750,000 compensation for Peter. The ex grata payments were accepted in good faith, but in 2016, under a different Attorney General, Michael Mischian, the state's Legal Aid Commission attempted to recover $145,353 from Raymond Mickelberg, an action which quickly lapsed as unlawful. The Assistant Police Commissioner Mal Hay has expressed disappointment about the decision to quash the convictions against the brothers. Mr Hay refused to apologise to the Mickelbergs, saying there remains considerable evidence to support they can suggest they committed the crime. Quote, There is an abundance of evidence to suggest and point the finger in their directions so that that evidence is still there, that hasn't been taken away in any way, it still exists today, and one can't ignore it, he said. End quote. Mr. Hay has also defended the officer in charge of the case, the late Don Hancock. Quote, He was a good officer, an officer that had a great deal of pride in being an officer with the West Australian Police Service, and during his time he locked up a lot of good criminals, and that ought to never be forgotten, he said. End quote. But investigative journalist Avon Lavelle, who wrote a book 20 years ago that revealed that the Mickelbergs have been framed by police, said that the decision is long overdue. Mr. Lavelle's book, The Sin Mickelberg Snitch, was banned for many years and he was sued by Tony Ludanowski and other detectives. He later taped Mr. Ludanowski's confession to fabricating evidence against the Mickelbergs. Mr. Lavelle said their convictions should have been quashed many years ago. Quote, One of the lawyers says it's a great day for justice, a great victory for justice. In fact, it's nothing of the kind. It's an appalling indictment on a system that failed to correct itself over 22 years, he said, end quote. Author Avon Lavelle wrote a book, The Mickelberg Snitch, about the case in 1985, which alleged questionable investigation practices by the police at the time, including production of, an, of unsigned confessions and a forged fingerprint. The police union collected a levy of $1 per week from each member to fund legal action against Lavelle and his publishers and distributors to suppress publication of the book. It was estimated that between $1 and $2 million was raised. The book was banned by the state government, but was still freely available to be read at the J.S. Bate Library. The ban was a eventually lifted. A second book by Lavelle, Split Image, was published in 1990 and met a similar fate to the first. This ban was also lifted later. In March 2011, Lavelle launched a third book on the case, A Litany of Lies, at about the same time that Antonio Beauty wrote on the subject. You are about to see and hear a story from beyond the grave. It's an astonishing video never before shown on television. It's an interview with a crooked cop, Tony Lewandowski. It was recorded just before he committed suicide last month. Now, the interview, confession really, sheds a whole new light on the biggest gold swindle in Australia's history, that daring heist from the Perth Mint 22 years ago this week. Three brothers went to jail for that crime, and it was Lewandowski's evidence that sent them there. But that evidence was false. The Micklebergs were framed. Here now is the proof of that. 
My name is Adam Lovell. Uh, I'm a journalist. I'm interviewing Anthony Lewandowski. It's the 5th of July. The interviewee here, Tony Lewandowski, has just committed suicide. He could no longer live with himself after 22 years of disgraceful conduct as a West Australian police officer. I've let down my family. I've let down the police force. I've let down the people of Australia. And that's why I was going to jump out of that window. And... It was journalist Avon Lovell the interviewer, who found Lewandowski's body after he'd hung himself. Over 22 years, Lovell had, uh, rightly and properly, been hounding Lewandowski. But paradoxically, at the end, Lovell was Lewandowski's friend and pallbearer. I could see him through the window with an with a electrical cord up around a, a rafter and, and, and his body huddled there, and, and it was just almost like it was always going to happen. If you believe the police version of events, it was 22 years ago this week that Ray, Peter and Brian Mickelberg robbed the Perth Mint of half a million dollars worth of gold. According to the police, the Mickelberg brothers began by first stealing cheques from a Perth building society. Then they fooled the Mint into accepting those cheques in exchange for the gold, which the Mickelberg brothers had picked up by a courier. Now the charges were conspiracy, fraud, arson and break and enter. And the charges succeeded largely because the youngest Mickelberg brother, Peter, fessed up. His confession, it's said, was taken down in longhand, word for word, by Sergeant Lewandowski. Right from the first day they were locked up, I suffered in the here. Ooh. There you have it. Yeah, this is what you first see when you come into Fremantle Prison for the first time, which is pretty daunting. It's like something out of the Dark Ages. Ray, Peter and Brian Mickelberg went straight into what was possibly Australia's toughest jail at the time, Fremantle. You'd sit there till your name was called and you'd be marched over here. You'd stand with your legs apart, or you'd strip first, you'd strip on that side, hang all your clothes up there, strip, bend over, they check you to see if you're carrying anything you shouldn't be. After nine months, Brian was cleared on appeal, but later died in a plane crash. This was yours? Yes, this is one of our cells here. Oh. See, very small once the bunks are in. Where, where were the beds? Right along here, paralleling the wall. Oh, bunks? Bunks, yeah. Double bunks. And where's the toilet? Oh, there is none. Well, you're not serious, eh? Yep, yep. That's all you had. Ray and yeah. Peter shared the three square metres of cell 61 for years and years. And it was from here that they began their series of appeals, including four that got as far as the High Court. Uh, what did you expect they would have got in the normal course? Probably three years. And with three years, you could, you, you could live with that? Because you knew no, that... No, I couldn't have lived with it. Because for the whole time this has gone on, it's ruined my life. 
At their trial in 83, the Mickelbergs said the cops were lying. But the judge didn't believe them, and so they were sentenced to 20 years, 16 years and 12 years. Then, at their appeals in 83, 84, 86, 87, 89, and twice in 1990, the Mickelbergs said the cops were lying, but the judges didn't believe them. Then, in 1992, I presented on this program incontrovertible evidence that the cops were lying. That went before the Chief Justice in 1998 in yet another appeal, and he threw it out. Now, in the next few days, that same Chief Justice is expected to hand down his judgment in yet another appeal, the 10th. And this time around, he's had the benefit of having heard directly from the copper himself. The cop admits that he lied. We'll see if that's enough to convince him this time around. It was corrupt conduct by the police that went through every layer of the legal system. Avon Lovell first exposed the police stitch-up of the Michelbergs in a very damaging book 20 years ago. The police union docked every copper $2 a pay to fund legal action to keep that book off the streets. Detective Tony Lewandowski was the frontispiece for this campaign to hide the truth. He was my enemy. It was extremely ironic at the end of the day that Lewandowski trusted me more than anybody else and came to me with the affidavit of his wrongdoing. Okay. Obviously, we didn't want you to uncover it. Why, why didn't you do something about me in a physical sense? Oh, well, because I'm that sort of person. What makes the miscarriage of justice here so egregious is that right through the 90s, the state continued to believe that pathetic figure Lewandowski, and much more importantly, believed his boss, the head of the CIB, a fellow called Hancock. Did Don actually punch Peter Mickelberg three times in the, in the guts? I don't know how many times. The respected, even revered top cop, Don Hancock, always denied that he had stripped naked and bashed Peter Mickelberg. Lewandowski now admits it. Hancock did it, and he helped. Then there was the verbally. Now, did you have a hand in the in the rewriting or the or the production of the notes of Raymond and Peter? Yes. And Brian Mickelberg. Yes. The police have sworn, black and blue, there was no rewriting. Commander Hancock swore. Peter Mickelberg's initial confession at Belmont Police Station was written down word for word. It was the entire interview, from beginning to end. What part this is reenactment from my story of 12 years ago. The entire interview, but not word for word what was said during the course of the interview. Yes, it was. Then Wait, Sergeant Lewandowski gave his evidence. There may be some parts of your notes that were written in later. No, nothing. No, there was nothing in the notes that was written in later. Technique developed in the 1970s. Then it was in 1992 that two English scientists proved beyond a shadow of doubt that the notes had been doctored. That had Hancock amending his story. The notes were now not word for word, but... What were taken were notes of a conversation, and they were brief notes. They were notes taken by Sergeant Lewandowski. They're, they're not a verbatim record of the conversation. They are notes for our own recollection at a later date. 
At that stage, I asked the CIB commander how that version of events gelled with his sworn evidence to the court ten years earlier. So would you give us that logical explanation, please? No, I will not. Uh, that's not something for to be bandied around in the, in the media. That's for the proper forum at the proper time. There are in excess of six million Australians watching you now, and you are prepared to wear the accusation that you've perjured yourself without putting a counter-argument. I've worn those sort of allegations for 10 years. Perjury, um, bashings, you name it, they've alleged it. At the time they were arrested, you expressed a belief uh, as to the quality of the evidence due to Mr Hancock. Can you call that? Yeah. But what did you say? I said there's no evidence there. But, well, and no real evidence to convict them. Okay. And what did he say? He said, well, the brief will get better. By 2001, the now retired Commander Hancock had clearly made one enemy too many. In a bikey revenge murder, his car was blown to smithereens. Now, this proved to be a pivotal event for Lewandowski, and now his conscience finally got the better of him. When Hancock was blown up, he decided to clear his conscience and he came forward. Why did he come There was to you? also, well, firstly, the, one of the other reasons he came forward was that in 1998, during that very important appeal, Hancock threatened his son very specifically in such terms that Lewandowski understood that if he didn't keep the line, his son would be killed. I, I couldn't speak while he was alive. And that hurt me. Mate, you don't know that I just didn't sleep at night. I, I was up at like 11 o'clock at night and I just sort of sat in the sat in the lounge room or somewhere and just drank piss because I was so mentally for being involved in this. Well, I'd just stop there. See, both of you blokes, you give me the impression that, I mean, you're wound up as tight as tight could be, and you've held it like this for 22 years, and you've only got to hold on for a few more days, and then you can... <laughs> Is that right? Well, God knows. We, we certainly hope that we're not that wound, that tightly wound. We are hardened system. We are confident in our own strength and our determination and willpower to continue till we die if necessary. Next minute this bloke punched me in the side of the head and I went down... Peter Mickelberg did six years inside and Ray did eight before the Crown implicitly acknowledged its mistake and released him by executive fiat. But these two brothers have been irreparably damaged by their jail experience. The fight went up into that toilet there and then I got hit over the head with something heavy. Toilet bucket, I reckon. Then I kept fighting him right up to that corner and then back to there and then he then bit my finger off. Shammy? Bit it off? Bit it off, yeah. clean off. And then they flushed it down the yeah. toilet. Yeah. Ray and Peter now stroll the streets in the West as they await the decision of the three-judge bench of the Court of Criminal Appeal. This bench is headed by the Chief Justice, who has, at a previous appeal, discounted the problems raised by Lewandowski's line. What might it have been like if Lewandowski
had told the truth first time round. It was just absolute shit for 20 years I had to live through that. Lewandowski said to me in the very last days of his life, if I had have told the truth when you went to trial, you would never have been found guilty, and that's true. But there's a final twist. For 22 years, the Mickelbergs have always protested their innocence. But Lewandowski went to his grave still believing they did it. So th throughout this, you have and still have a belief that the Mickelbergs had, had perpetrated the crime? Oh, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever. I'm convinced that they were, they did it, and it's the end of the story. Hello, I'm Liz Hayes. Thanks for watching 60 Minutes Australia. Subscribe to our channel now for brand new stories and exclusive clips every week. And don't miss out on our extra minute segments and full episodes of 60 Minutes on 9now.com.au and the 9now app. However, even more scandals came behind the Perth Mint revelations. A much larger wave of scandal threatened to wash across Western Australia with a Royal Commission into Police Corruption scheduled to look into alleged corrupt police activities. In the 1980s, the cloistered club that was the Perth establishment spawned the carpet-bagging alliance between Labour politicians and cowboy businessmen that became as infamous as WA Inc. Most of these people ended up in jail. Alan Bond, now a failed loan shark in Britain, spent years behind bars. His close associate, the late Laurie Last Resort Connell, would have done similar time had he not died first. Two Labour premiers were jailed, and the, and the federal career of a third, Dr Carmen Lawrence, once tipped as Australia's first woman Prime Minister, was truncated. Dozens of smaller fish were netted. The Royal Commission into Police Corruption, led by State Supreme Court Judge Geoffrey Kennedy, was set up to examine allegations of similar explosive potential spanning several decades and a number of similar unsuccessful bids to investigate graft in Western Australia. Successive governments have promised and ultimately abandoned such probes ever since celebrity Madame Shirley Finn was executed with four shots to the head in 1975. The Shirley Finn case I will cover in another podcast episode. Allegations of police and political complicity were fueled by the long-standing arrangement under which police allowed a number of illegal brothels to operate to keep some sort of control over the industry and the crime traditionally associated with it. Rumours of allegations of direct police involvement in prostitution, drugs and other major crime inevitably followed, fueled by an increasing stream of public claims. In 1996, a parliamentary committee found that the police force was tainted by serious corruption. Corrupt police were also alleged to have been implicated in the theft of millions of dollars of diamonds from the huge Argoyle mine in northwestern Australia. Victorian crime buster Bob Falconer was recruited as commissioner in 1994 to clean out the stables and introduced a major reform program before being replaced in 1999 by former New Zealand Deputy Commissioner Barry Matthews. To this day, the money stolen from the Perth Mint has never been found and no one has ever been charged and convicted of the crime. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions that still remain unanswered. Please rate this show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time, next on Unanswered Questions.
The Huntley Rail Bridge bombing, as it was known, occurred on the Glen Afton or Arawa branch near Huntley, New Zealand, around 3 a.m. on the 30th of April 1951, when high explosives were set off on a railway bridge. 